we all know that we learn in different ways. And if, if kids are given the opportunity to learn in a way that it best works for them, I think that would be amazing. My greatest hope is that these tools will help us see the humanity in ourselves and each other. I really feel like this is the only way forward for collective advancement is if we challenge the theories that are unkind to us. Hi everyone, uh, welcome to Wise On Air. It's a show where we talk to the world's leading minds on the future of education. My name is Aurelio Amaral and I'll be the host today for this conversation. I wanna ask today, what does the future hold for educators in this AI-driven society? Will AI deliver the solutions to ongoing challenges? Uh, and I'm talking here specifically about practical day-to-day -day problems that teachers and students face in classrooms. Uh, so today we're set to explore uh, some of those pressing questions. We're honored to have two amazing guests here with us today, each of them bringing a, a diverse perspective and great expertise uh, on the intersection of education and artificial intelligence. Um, first, we have Pelonomi Moilua. She's the CEO and co-founder of Lelapa AI a socially grounded, Africa-centric AI research and product lab. She has formal training in biomedical and electro electrical engineering, sorry, and has almost 10 years of experience in applying machine learning solutions to industries. And joining us as well is Dr. Mark Caban. Mark is the Chief Knowledge Officer of Exam and Leadership Collective. It's an adult development and coaching practice for educators and cross-sector leaders. Mark served as CEO of Yalla SD, an NGO with the mission to partner with US-based refugees, youth, to engage them in deeper learning and also competitive football programs. And he was also recently on the faculty of High Tech High Graduate School of Education, serving as the director of Education Leadership's master's program. So thank you once again for joining. Our conversation today will explore the concerns and also the excitements uh, that you might have on the future role of AI in education. So I'm going to start uh, first by welcoming you again and thanking you for joining us in the show and asking what worries you and what excites you the most in an AI-driven classroom. You want to start us off, Polonomi? Okay, that's the universal signal for you go first. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we got an internal processor here. You know, one thing that we started to talk about right before the podcast began was the idea of technology as a fundamentalist ideology uh, from the United States primarily. I, th I would say that the United States is a fundamentalist country in three different ways. When it comes to patriotism, that's somehow the United States is the oldest democracy in the world and the leader of the free world. That is a fundamentalist belief no matter what they do in the world. The second one is around capitalism, which is this is the only economic uh, kind of structure that we can have that can bring prosperity, even though time and time again, it's, it's failing us. And the third one is around technology, uh, which is that technology is going to make the world a better place and we will be the ones who will provide this. Having said that... <laughs> What's up? We'll provide the technology to everyone. Exactly. We will be the ones that will do this. And this is this has a long tradition from colonialism of modernizing the post-colonial countries and the, the 
you know, if you, if you ever watched Avatar The Last Airbender, the fire nation that's spreading their uh, prosperity to the world. So I, I want to start there. And I think that there, there hasn't really been a real critique of this fundamentalism at a, at a session like this. Hopefully we can add to that a little bit. Having said that, I think that AI can have some upsides to education. And what it does really well, uh, like machine learning and LLMs, is just to kind of put together information in unique ways. And so what's really important is that what's happening in the classroom is that teachers are changing what the task is, what we're asking students to do. In the past, if you're like writing an essay, I don't know if you remember writing essays in high school, they kind of gave you this form formula to write it. Here's the thesis, here's that, here's this. And what a student would do, what I used to do, was you just find something, you cut and paste it, you put it together, you turn it in. That's the only thing that happens to the paper. So right now that cutting and pasting is being delegated to AI. And so even though there is a little bit of a learning loss, I don't really think that it's that great of a loss. So to me, the, the continued question is, what are the things that we're asking young people to do? I was thinking about when I was young, what was the first thing that I wrote that I cared about? And it kind of came to me the other day is, I, in the first grade when I was living in Lebanon, I fell in love with a girl in my class and I wanted to write her a love letter. Mm. That was the first thing that I ever cared about. And my dad helped me. You know, I remember uh, sitting with him sentence by sentence. This is when I was learning Arabic, the language of love. And um, that was the first thing that I ever really cared about uh, that I wrote. And I, and I can't think of another thing that mattered to me in that way until much later. And I think that's the way that people in the middle class learn how to write, right? You write that letter to your aunt uh, for the Christmas gift or the Eid gift that you got. The first time that I ever thought about numbers was trying to figure out how much money I can get per can that I was recycling with my family. You know, we were displaced from Lebanon, immigrants in the United States, and our balcony was full of cans. I don't know how many people's families do that, still do that. Um, but when you go to school, somehow that way of putting something together that you write that you care about or um, that you have a passion for, even love, right? Um, it's not there. And so kids from communities that have been marginalized kind of come and uh, they have education done to them. And I think with AI, without AI, I, I still think that's dominantly what's going to be happening in classrooms. Blenary. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to think and listen at the same time, but I think I've got it. Um, so I, I have a number of concerns um, with AI in the classroom. So firstly, I mean, my expertise is in implementing and building um, engineering solutions and, and AI models. Um, but I myself am also involved within the education sphere um, around teaching girls to code. Um, and also as a, as a trustee member of a scholarship fund for high school students from underprivileged backgrounds. And I myself um, have not been able to bridge um, the use of AI within that realm in a useful way. Um, I'm from South Africa, so I'm from a developing country. Um, I think my concerns around AI is what is actually going to be useful in the classroom how that is different in different areas of the world. I think for many first world countries, 
um, their concern is around um, making AI a tool that can help kids to personalize their education experience. Um, in the rest of the world and in the majority of the world, our concerns are around access and the quality of that access. I think um, at the same time that AI is able to scale um, things at a lower cost, that it's, that's its primary contribution to be able to do things is, is scale complex things at, at, at a lower price. Um, it's also able to scale the problematics of the education system that we have currently available to us. Um, and I, I said in a panel yesterday that, you know, AI is actually really bad at a lot of things. Um, it's bad at most things. Um, but something that it has been really good at is highlighting to humans what in our experience is not aligned with what is required by the world, right? So we know that um, a lot of what the education system currently is about is is in terms of preparing a, a, a socially acceptable labor force in order to perform the roles of work. Um, but has that what education has always been about? Is that what education is about in different contexts and different societies and different parts of the world? Um, and I worry that AI is just going to exasperate that. We're, we're not going to learn about how to care for each other. We're not going to learn about resolution conflict or how to solve complex problems. We're going to learn how to sit at a desk from nine to five um, so that the capital machine can continue to grow and flourish. Um, That's my primary concern. But um, I think I am quite excited about the opportunity for AI to, to um, help grow personalized learning. We all know that we learn in different ways. And if, if kids are given the opportunity to learn in a way that, that it best works for them, I think that would be amazing. Um, there's that thing about trying to get a goldfish to climb a tree and then you judge it for not being able to climb the tree. Um, I myself have had learning difficulties as a kid. I still sometimes mix my numbers and my letters backwards and otherwise people might think of that as a sign of a lack of intelligence. But for many of our kids, they get left behind because their way of thinking and learning does not match um, the standard of what somebody somewhere has decided needs to be the measure of whether they will succeed in life or not. Um, and AI has the potential to change that and to give more people the chance um, to, to live a good life and, and put food on the table and have a roof over their head. And have those uh, personal interactions that you were mentioning as well. So it all goes back to building the relationships uh, inside and outside classroom um, that make us human. Yeah, I think that people mostly learn because the love that they have for their teachers and for each other, mm. you know, and yesterday we had the opening ceremony for the conference and they had a young man named MC Abdul, who's a rapper from, from Gaza. And right before he came on stage, uh, we had a speaker talking about AI, how sophisticated it's becoming, uh, how the Turing test has been the test to identify if something is a machine or is human made for so long and she gave an, an example of Shakespeare and asked us which one uh, was written by Shakespeare which one was written by AI and then right after that we had MC Abdul come and what was fascinating about him is that he's a young man that has grown up in what many people call a concentration camp and he's appropriated one of the most successful artistic and political expressions in modern history, uh, which is the black intellectual 
artistic expression in the world of hip-hop and you know he has some beautiful lyrics uh, one of the things that he said was um sleep with our sandals leave the door open because when the bombs drop we don't have time to open up the handles right and he also had another line another bar that i loved which was i forgot to met i've been through a lot of wars i forgot to mention I can calculate the distance of the airplane engine. And I, I don't think that AI could write that. I really don't. Um, this is a young man who's using this black artistic expression, which Paul Gilroy talks about. The black artistic expression is one that never differentiates political thought from the artistic expression that it's connected to, which is exactly what he's doing. And he's coming to the world using this perspective and I can imagine the way that he learned. I mean, one of the, my colleagues made a comment. My, one of my colleagues uh, from Colombia said, uh, MC Abdul, he grew up in the United States, right? I said, no, nah, he grew up in, in Gaza because he has a, essentially an American accent or something mm -hmm. very close to it. And that's because he learned English from Dr. Dre, from Ice Cube, <laughs> from Easy e These are actually rappers that I first listened to when I came to the U.S., and, you know, no one had to motivate him to learn this stuff. I mean, he loved it. And he, he was memorizing raps as a kid. He was writing his own lyrics. He was having ciphers with his friends. He had an authentic audience through social media, projecting it to the world. He's had this impact uh, that's really phenomenal. And so it's a really great example of hip-hop pedagogy. Um, and I think that, you know, that's really what should be the focus of these conversations of like what is the things that move people to transform themselves and the world around them if ai is a tool to do that that's great um but we need to have a conversation about how that kind of happens and i i think that uh there's so much excitement about ai and some of the technical things that it can do that i i'm worried that we're not having the conversations about the tasks the relationships this idea of transforming self and the world through hip-hop pedagogy in this case yeah. absolutely but let me just uh, uh summarize that you basically said that mc abdul's uh uh poetry uh beats shakespeare <laughs> in my humble and correct yeah, opinion i think so but, yeah. but also at the same time <laughs> arabic love mentors um yeah. and i think this is another concern of mine that you know when technology is developed in in isolated areas of the world um it's ability and mechanism to like basically indoctrinate everybody into the same homogenous culture is a very very scary one very true himself in a situation um i think it is a little bit unfortunate that he's had to venture outside of his own experience in order to be able to do so with with an american accent and a fuji's backtrack um true and I wish he had the opportunity um, to do the same within, within, um, yeah, something something closer to that. I mean, of course, there's there's all uh, benefits to him being able to appeal to an American audience, right? Um, I mean, we know that that is a significant um, contributing factor to this this conflict is the public opinion of Americans and right. of the American political system in general. But um, I do worry that with with AI. Um, we're being fed ways of being, ways of knowing, ways of understanding and learning that is not for all of us. Absolutely. And that's a point that I wanted to bring as well. Uh, I mean, we know that 
most of the AI available out there is produced in the global north for primarily the global north as well. Um, so like how, how crucial it is for education systems to develop students and teachers critical thinking on uh, AI literacy basically and, and what are the perspectives that should be taken into account and how might they vary depending on the geography, depending on the socioeconomic context. I would love to hear uh, your perspective. Shoulder shrug. Um. Yeah, I, I think it can be difficult to separate the mechanisms through which AI can have an influence over education, right? Um, you have the areas where it can be used in the classroom to help facilitate learning in better ways. You have the areas where it can help facilitate the teaching experience for a teacher and, and a child in terms of the tools and mechanisms to administer the, the knowledge. Um, and then there's also the stuff outside of that where we're preparing kids for a future that is going to have a lot more AI than we know what to do with. Um, and I think that is, that is my main focus and understanding of where we are now because we don't really know what that future is going to look like and what it's going to be. But I mean, <laughs> people don't know what they're consuming um, and, it's, and it's super dangerous. We've, we've seen this with the spreading of fake news and um, through malintentioned media We've seen it through social media and its effect on, on the psychological state of our kids um, and, and the rising trend of nihilism amongst yes. Gen Z. Um, and I think that part of educating people around what it is um, for their own benefit so that they can choose how to interact and consume, um, that is, is something that is very urgent and more so urgent than the other aspects of like what is it about AI that is highlighting in our experience that we need to observe critically um, and, and consume critically? Because um, that's, that's not happening very well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think you made a really good point about the dominant culture, right? Like maybe this kind of globalized ruling class culture maybe or, or common sense, right? Because it's common sense to who is going to be more efficiently <laughs> kind of disseminated to people across the world. But, but AI is just the latest frontier on creating national memory. In the United States, the way that curriculum happens, it's, it goes through a political process. Uh, politicians are the ones that are essentially creating curriculum, syllabus, textbooks. And there's lots of documented research about what kind of messages coming through through these textbooks, right? Some of them I've mentioned earlier, um, to this day in the United States and most of history textbooks, uh, what is taught about Hiroshima and Nagasaki is that the Americans saved lives by dropping, dropping a nuclear bomb. I know that might sound like a ludicrous thing. I'm trying to control my yes, facial expression. <laughs> but, but, the, but not only the average American, I would say most Americans would say that we saved lives, uh, you know, but in reality, research has shown that the Japanese were within days of uh, surrendering because they knew that the Soviets were going to join the efforts within, within that week. So, so this national memory is created through this political process. This just happened in, in California. There was an ethnic studies curriculum that went through a very arduous political process. 
And for the first time ever in the U.S., they were trying to include Palestine into an ethnic studies curriculum. It was in there, very marginally, in the index, uh, but the Zionist forces that have an asymmetrical um, influence on what is adopted won that political fight and essentially erased Palestine out of the curriculum. Gavin Newsom is the one that led that charge. Um, and you can see him in the political arena getting involved with what's happening in Palestine right now, but he was also involved in the education part. Now, that's on the liberal side of the spectrum. <laughs> if you go to to Florida, sorry, I'm talking about the U.S. so much. Uh, it's the center of the universe, as you know. <laughs> as we all. But the governor... Similar with the African-American AP curricula, They've been, they've been attacking these things throughout the country with different books that have been outlawed. I mean, even uh, the pedagogy of the oppressed has been outlawed in the state of Arizona for, for decades, which I argue is because I think that conservatives understand the book more than liberals do, because at its heart, it's a revolutionary book where, you know, he's quoting um, revo revolutionaries like uh, Franz Fanon, uh, <laughs> like Lenin talks about revolutionary praxis and theory but the way that it's taught these days and education uh, training programs is kind of a sanitized uh, guide to teaching teachers how to teach so I would argue that that's why I argue that Arizona kind of knows more about the book than most people and uh, that are teaching that text um, so yeah there was conversations here and, and we're gonna I'm gonna talk about Palestine a little bit because it's something that we should be talking about, especially being here in Qatar. And there was some experimenting that I was doing on, on ChatGBT. One of them was a very simple prompt about, should Israelis be free? Should Palestinians be free? I asked the same question. Very, very different answers. One of them was saying that uh, human freedom is a universal right for everyone. And the other one said that it was a contentious and uh, complex question. Yeah. You can imagine you can, which one was for which. And then I asked another question. I kept going. I was tinkering with it. The other thing that I asked was, is Israel an apartheid state? Yeah. And I asked, uh, what human rights organizations are saying this? Mm. And I had, to, I had to input the information. I know that it's Human Rights Watch. I know that it's Amnesty. I know that it's uh, Beit Salem. But the the chat GBT didn't give me that information. I had to ask it. Mm. And then it said, well, there's people on the other side uh, that contest this. So I asked, who are these organizations? This is my conversation with chat GBT this morning. Yeah. It said, it's the Anti-Defamation League. Uh, it's the Jewish, uh, I think it was the Jewish League. And the third one was a, a famous museum uh, about the ho uh, a Holocaust Museum in the United States. And so then I asked ChatGPT, have they conducted studies that are data-driven, that are about uh, on-the-ground interviews? And it said, no, they're more of a political advocacy organization that puts out statements. So then, but I had to get it there through all this, for all the knowledge and information that I have. And so th this is one of the challenges of, of who's feeding, who's feeding the LLMs, because it's, it's not artificial. Someone is putting this information in there. I'm but, so glad you said yeah. that. Sorry, because I, I think people tend to abstract AI outside of the human experience. There's no such thing as AI jail. 
if AI does something bad, it's because a human has told it to. And, and we forget that there's always a human behind the process, not just in terms of what the AI has come to learn and to know, but in the intentions that it is then perpetuating with the rest of the world. And I mean, it's the case of the Palestinians that other marks <laughs> in presentation yesterday was revealing how, for example, translation systems used by Meta have repeatedly put Palestinians in precarious situations by translating Arabic incorrectly. In, in ways, I think, as early as 2016, where a Palestinian man standing next to a truck drinking his morning coffee and it said good morning in the title was um, translated into we shall hurt them or we shall kill them or something like that. And he was arrested. Um, and there was a similar case with Instagram in, in more recent times. Um, and it's not just Palestinians, right? There are models where a, a sentiment model, which determines whether a particular text has a positive or a negative sentiment. And, you put into that um, Chinese food. Chinese food has a negative sentiment. Mm -hmm. um, Italian food has a positive sentiment. You put in names. You put in a Shakir or um, Shaniqua, mm -hmm. negative sentiment. You put in other names. They have positive sentiments. When, when these should not be determined within the text and when that is then being exposed to children through tools like ChatGPT or, or, or otherwise, um, I don't think we fully understand the extent of personal image and pride in terms of confidence of what students are able to achieve when they're repeatedly shown this imagery and this information around how um, the people who've created this technology see them as inadequate. Um, I mean, we've had cases in South Africa, um, and not, not so formally, and we've seen other cases elsewhere with facial recognition systems, um, of course, not working as well on dark skins, particularly yes. on black females. Um, and coincidentally, COVID comes and everybody's using facial recognition software for kids to take exams. And there's a disproportionate rate of black students going through to disciplinary hearings um, for cheating. Mm -hmm. um, and <laughs> the people who, who are using this tool have no idea that the technology just works better on some people than others and your, your students aren't cheating. Mm -hmm. uh, they're, just, they're just being labeled black by a system that doesn't know blackness. This is just yeah, f fascinating and I, I'm trying to picture the reality of um, a, a teacher like go, going through uh, an argument with ChatGPT or a student yeah. going through. Like um, the question that um, we've been asking ourselves like, um, are we focusing too much uh, on the use of AI uh, and like how to apply AI uh, in classroom, etc., and not so much on um, educating both educators and uh, students on the mechanisms behind those tools? Yeah. Um, and I, if I ask you guys, uh, should we be doing both? Uh, I'm sure you're going to say, yes, we should be doing both. But what is the right... Ratio. proportion yeah. ratio if we had to to establish one like how much time should we be spending on the awareness uh around the benefits and risks versus the actual pedagogical uses of of ai in education yeah and i i mean i would turn that into three categories where you're teaching them about the risks of using the technology you're then determining how that technology can be useful in the classroom but also understanding how the introduction of this technology is going to um, make us rethink about what education is and its outcomes are and, and how we can 
um, move forward into a future that is able to teach us the stuff that we need to know in order to live a fulfilling life. Um, the percentage, though. If you had to give it a percentage. If I had to give it a percentage. I think the percentage would change over time. I think the, the main um, urgent factor at the moment is around developing critical um, engagement with these technologies. And so my large percentage would be placed there probably on around a, a 30 to 40% with 20, 20 each for the other two for now. Um, but then that changes over time when, when people are able to consume consciously. Um, that can fall away and then we can move on to the other stuff and continue to learn and grow. Yeah. What, what percentages would you assign? I, I like your percentages. We're going to go with that. Uh, well, <laughs> even with the three categories? I, I'm not good with numbers. That's the problem. Before the show, I heard you both would disagree, but I'm actually seeing more agreement than disagreement. I like agreeing. I like agreeing with her. Well, one thing that I wanted to talk about, which we were speaking about this before as well, is this is an opportunity for us to take a step back and ask this question about what is the point of education? Yeah. And the Greeks had a concept called paideia, which meant deep education, which is different from cheap schooling. And I will say schooling is important in the sense where we need uh, information, access to skills and ideas. I think these are really important. But what the Greeks had with the concept of paideia was about generating a sensibility to grapple with the things that matter the most in life. Fear, love, joy, justice, injustice, friendship. And then with this critical sensibility and this self-awareness, also generating the courage to take action on these things, right? Uh, in line 38a of uh, Plato's Apology, Socrates said, an unexamined life is not worth living, right? And in 24a, he said, parhesia, the source of my unpopularity. And parhesia is about fearless, unintimidated speech. These ideas of critical pedagogy, which we read about from Paulo Freire to, to Bell Hooks to Cornell West, you know, they come from a tradition of paideia and parhesia from the Greeks. This has been around since antiquity. And so today, when we had a young student from, from Gaza tell us, don't forget about us when you go back to where you're from when you go into your sessions i looked around the room and i said how many people here really have the parhesia and the dedication to paideia to not forget i don't know because you have to put things on the line you got to take risks and if we're ever going to live in a world where we even have the minimum moral integrity that all human life is equal we haven't even reached the minimal moral integrity we have these universal beliefs that every life is worth equal as the other and in its universality there's also another universal universalism in it and that we all break that every day based on how rich or poor that we are all right so in america if you are an iraqi kid in el cajon if you're a black kid from, from Brockton, you're, you're not gonna matter as much in that society by the dominant culture. The same thing in the political arena. Palestinians are some of the most oppressed people in the world and the same with Sudanese and the Congolese because they don't have a lot of allies in the international arena. 
uh, they're poor. And so we haven't even reached the minimum moral integrity. So I just keep asking this question, what is the point of education? What are we trying to do? Is AI trying to get more people into the status quo? Or are we trying to break the status quo? I feel like most of the conversations have been about how can we get more kids into the status quo? How can we get them? These new skills, these new... That's fine, and I think that's important. And when you're young, I think that, uh, you know, it's okay for, for learning to be a little lower level, a, <laughs> a little more rote, as long as it's rigorous and contextual and based on things like love letters, right? Or <laughs> writing a letter to your khalto, your auntie, uh, for that for the Eid gift. So I, kinda, I think all this chat about AI, uh, no pun intended, <laughs> has been just reaffirming my beliefs in Paideia, in Parhesia, in this work. But the, the difficult thing about it is most people are not willing to take a risk. Most people at this conference ain't willing to make the risks. People are the CEO of this, CEO of that. They got a lot to lose. The, the oh. revolutionary change ain't going to come from this conference. I'm sorry. It's but, not. But let me ask you a question. Like, it can let, let me just finish that thought. Okay. I want to say... I want to say that the change is always going to come from the people that are the closest to suffering. And we got to let suffering speak. And that's what critical pedagogy, that's what the pedagogy of the oppressed is about. And I, and I think that the AI craze needs to get us back to having these conversations about what is the point of what we're trying to do. You I mean, know? I think that's a, that's, sorry, I'm going to jump in here. Jump in. Um, because I, I think this ideal world of a place where, you know, we've somehow figured out the wealth distribution um, option and people are able to explore, what are your Greek words? Paideia, Paideia, in terms of their learning outcomes, is a beautiful place that we should be striving towards. But the reality of those people coming from um, oppressed places or, or places of difficulty and struggle is that they do need jobs. They do need um, education that is able to put them in a skill-based position where they can be part of this unfortunate capital machine so that they can play the game that has been set by the universe as, as what they are required to play. And I think finding the balance between enabling people to do that, but at the same time challenging how everything works um, so that we can reach this place in this of the future with with Paideia and Parhesia. Parhesia. <laughs> um, is the main challenge yeah. that I mean we have these disparities within different regions of the world where where people are struggling and they just yeah. need to learn so that they can have a job, um, but at the same time challenging whether that's the world that we want to see in the future. And and I think AI has a role to play in yeah. both of those. Yeah, the, the point I was going to make, there, there has been in the history uh, instances of, you know, technological uh, innovations that caused uh, disruptions in, yeah. you know, social structures uh, to a certain extent, depending on the period. Uh, and that somehow impacted how people uh, viewed uh, education. And yeah. you uh, mentioned principles that date back from the Greeks. Um, the question is, do you, mm -hmm. do you think that, you know, AI innovations can be disruptive enough to change uh, social contracts in a way that also might alter how we think about education or, or maybe not? I really hope they will be. Because um, this legacy left over by the Industrial Revolution doesn't make anybody feel good. Um, 
and and so the hope is that it will be um yeah that's all that's all i have to say i, I would there's a feeling that ai is something that we haven't seen before and in some ways that's true in other ways it's not true you know most of the technologies or the ways of learning that we've had over the last hundred something years have been instructor led have been algorithm led or have been peer-to-peer led ai is just kind of good at all three of those things coming together um i i just don't i don't see a world where kids are going to be very excited to be sitting on speaking to chatbots all day i just i just don't see it if I, I don't know people in the crowd here. How many of you guys have been using chat bots for the last week? Show of hands. Maybe a little bit. I'm not sure people are shy, but there's only a few hands up. <laughs> it's a, kind of the same thing with virtual reality headsets. I don't imagine a world where you're going to walk in. There's going to be 30 kids with VR headsets because they're disconnected from one another. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure. I think that it's going to find its place in the universe of education. It's going to be domesticated somewhere in that universe because schools are really busy places you know and they don't really do a lot of things really well and there's always people trying to get teachers to do different and new things it's really hard when you're teaching like 200 kids a day eight periods and unless biology or chemistry or one of these things is going away sometime soon it's really hard to fit things in within the framework of what education is right now so I think that my, my optimism around AI is a little bit more tempered. I've had experiences, I, I worked for nearly 10 years with refugees, and one of the things that we were trying to do was to get them into college, right? That's the great, the great equalizer that we say economically, right, to your point earlier. And what was the most troubling statistic is that the SAT test, which is the test that gets kids into college, it's, it's kind of like the barrier, right, was most directly linked to your um, income. So it was richer kids do better on the test. And so all the rich kids had the SAT prep that their families paid for. And the argument that people made was if poor kids could have that training, then they can get into college as well. So they made all these big promises with Khan Academy. They created all these free training things. And what that showed really quickly was that poor kids were not using Khan Academy rich kids were just using it more so it was just kind of elevating the people that were already well to do and i saw it directly from the kids that i was working with when we tried to get them to work on their Khan academy they hated it they didn't want to stay there um and look at a computer all day it was the same thing with all the adaptive curriculum stuff the algorithmic learning through like st math through through imagine learning all these different exciting platforms that people were were evangelizing the same way that we're evangelizing ai right now and i'll tell you until we started creating real projects that were about transforming their world through understanding themselves there was never an exciting moment in our academy you know i made a lot of mistakes um earlier on in my career and so i think it's that's even worth a conversation as well about what does it take for young people to access those skills and those tools to get these jobs? Because I'm not yeah. saying that there's no uh, need for that. But young people want to learn about these things when they get to understand who they are. Right. And about the, and, and engage with the things that they care about. And that needs to be the pedagogical philosophy that's kind of driving a teacher in a classroom. And it's really hard to do deep learning. Right. And most kids in public schools are black and brown and indigenous. And most of the teachers are white. 
And so there's like this, the white teachers have a lens of the way that they look at the world. There's almost an apartheid-like situation in these classrooms as well. And so it, there's a lot of challenges. There's a lot of challenges to expanding. I, I forgot what the question is. <laughs> I do think that the challenges are limited by the imagination of true, who's, true. Who, yeah. who has license and who has the opportunity to future imaginaries, right? Based yeah. off of their position in society. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I think, uh, I, I have a language AI company. So we build um, language models for indigenous languages. And to me, like this exciting future where you can have a fotla, which is a, a, a Dzwana concept from South Africa, where people come and they sit under a tree and they, they discuss the issues of, of, of the present moment. If you could have a fotla under multiple trees across the world with people who speak different languages, engaging with each other within the same moment, I think that is, that is an exciting and a beautiful place to, to go towards or having a kid in a rural village who has the opportunity to engage with the internet and have information translated into a language that they can consume and they can understand so they can process mathematical and biological concepts in a way that they wouldn't if they had to learn English first. Um, these are the things that I'm super excited mm. about. But we, like you say, there's yeah. challenges. We could uh, continue. We should have a part two of this conversation, by the way. <laughs> All right. Uh, our colleagues are telling us that our time is almost up. So you, just you're getting the universal cut it Re- sign. <laughs> <laughs> but just to, to wrap up, because we've been talking about both uh, exciting and uh, worrying aspects mm-hmm. of AI in education. So I'd like to ask each of you uh, to say in one sentence, one thing that either uh, excites you a lot <laughs> mm-hmm. or worries you a lot uh, in AI education. I'm going to, uh, no, then if you go, you're going to end on a negative. <laughs> oh my God. I, I promise I'll try to be as positive as I can. Um, I'm, I'm super optimistic, um, specifically around opportunities of language to just open up the world to more people um, within education. Um, which is why I have a startup that does language. Um, yeah. Mark. You know, Henry, Henry James had this beautiful bar, I think, that he wrote, which was, no theory is kind to us that cheats us of seeing. No theory is kind to us that cheats us, cheats us of seeing. My greatest hope, if I'm channeling my optimistic side, is that these tools will help us see the humanity in ourselves and each other. Because I really feel like this is the only way forward for collective advancement is if we challenge the theories that are unkind to us, that don't allow us to see one another and the beauty that we have and the beauty that we have to offer to the world. Beautiful note to end this show today. I appreciate the encouragement to be more positive at the end there. I mean, where are you going if the future isn't a nice place? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you again, Mark Lonomir. It was a great conversation. Thank you all in the audience. Uh, and Thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you.